Hey, everyone. I'm Hannah Rosen, the executive producer of New York Magazine's podcasts. We are working hard on our next season of Cover Story, which should be out sometime in October. But in the meantime, I wanted to share with you something different. At New York Magazine Audio, we just launched a new show called Into It. It's hosted by the great Sam Sanders, formerly host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and it's a collaboration with New York Magazine's Vulture. It's a show about all the pop culture you can't stop thinking about. And we're going to run an episode here for you to try. If you like it, go subscribe. Into it. Here we go. Sam, why aren't we doing video? Uh, so, oh, well, let me throw a shirt on first. But <laughs> we can. Hold on. Uh, that's a different podcast. <laughs> Sam Sanders and the E. But I will say hi quickly. So I don't usually do camera because I do my little audio recordings in Aww. this booth that looks like solitary confinement. See? <laughs> hi. <laughs> but I'm here, and I'm so glad to see your face in an actual room. Hey, I'm Sam Sanders, and you are listening to Into It from Vulture and New York Magazine. And this... Hey, everybody. My name is Amber Mildred Ruffinhead. This is my first guest, Amber Ruffin. I write on Late Night with Seth Meyers, and I have a show called The Amber Ruffin Show. It's available on Peacock. Peacock exists. And, um... (laughs) We're going to kick things off with a game that we here at Into It made up just a few weeks ago. We are calling this game Into It. Or not into it. It is very simple. I mention a recent headline, and you tell me whether you're into it or not into it. And then at the end of the game, I'll decide if you've won, and I'll award points based on how much I like your opinions. I got to get all these points, man. I'm in. You can do it. I believe in you. I really do. First one. How into it or not into it? Are you a fan service? This is a story that concerns Ryan Murphy and how much his fans want him to do for them. I don't know what you're talking about, and I am absolutely not into that. His fans want <laughs> fan service. him to do stuff for them? Fans are making really specific requests of Ryan Murphy for the upcoming season of his hit series, American Horror Story. Have you seen this one? It's kind of bonkers, this whole story. I have never seen this story, but I do love American Horror Story. And now I can relate a little bit more because I would be telling him what to do. (laughs) (laughs) All I'll say is one of the best Angela Bassett performances of all time was when she was the voodoo queen witch wearing red in that season of American Horror Story. That was good. You bring me their heads, all of them, then you burn that place to the ground. Anywho, there are some people who are not loving it right now, uh, and that is American Horror Story superfans. They announced last week that they are going on a media blackout this month and rising up against Ryan Murphy because they say in advance of the newest season of American Horror Story, they aren't getting enough insider information. Oh, my God. That's fantastic. I know, right? How insane do you have to be to behave like that? The AHS Zone account, they said, quote, What has leaked so far about AHS season 11 has failed to stir excitement in a fandom that embraces the fact that the heyday of AHS is behind us. Oh, my God. That's so mean. They went on. 
They went on to say, quote, we are the show's cheerleaders who play an important, if voluntary, role in the promotional ecosystem. We spend months on end, year round, thanklessly maintaining enthusiasm for the show, and we're tired. We speak for the fandom in saying that we've grown bored of having to excite ourselves. <laughs> How do you react I, to that? What's your take on that? I Just hear me read that. Absolutely fantastic. What a day to be alive. <laughs> I cannot believe that grown men and women are behaving so you're into this it. way. I absolutely love it. It's unhinged. I mean, look, Sam, I got to be honest. I feel exactly two ways about this. One, it's bonkers. I love it. I want to be the captain of these people. <laughs> They're insane, and I want to be near them. Yes. And two, I feel like, who the fuck do you think you are? You don't do shit. You haven't written a single fucking word. These people work so fucking hard for you to just pre-cancel the show. Eat shit. But also, it's very fun. I feel both ways. I feel exactly, yeah. I feel yeah. exactly both ways. I think we're on the same page with this story. I will end uh, this little one by saying, one man you never want to ask for more crazy is Ryan Murphy. Mm-hmm. Sit down, kids. Sit down. <laughs> Number two, Amber, are you into or not into comedians with degrees from Harvard? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, I work in late night. Of course I know what you're talking about. <laughs> Tell um, our listeners this story, if you will. Most... I shouldn't say most. There are, yeah, yeah, how do you, I'm tiptoeing. There are people, um, there, yeah, God bless it. There was a time when comedians from Harvard were very revered. And um, Mm -hmm. as time went on, people understood that you don't need a Harvard degree to write comedy. I bring up this whole Harvard thing because... In a recent interview with the Boston Globe, comedian and actor and writer B.J. Novak said that his Harvard degree has actually been terrible for his career. (laughs) Did you see that? (laughs) He didn't quite say terrible, but I'm going to read the quote for you. He said, quote, it's the worst thing to have on a comedy resume. The worst He goes on to say, comedy is an underdog profession. You're speaking up for the underdog. You're saying what isn't said by the people in charge. But, parentheses, Harvard makes people think you're in a different category or that you think you are. Sam, we all have our own journeys. Now, we still haven't answered the central question. Are you, Amber Ruffin, personally into or not into comedians with degrees from Harvard? I'm not into them. Are you into podcast hosts with degrees from Harvard? No. Amber? Click. Amber, let me tell you a secret. I have uh, a degree in advanced binge drinking, a.k.a. a master's degree in public policy from Harvard. My own Sam. <laughs> It'd be your own sometimes. Dare. It'd be your own. I think I'm with you. I think I'm with you. I bet you are. Here's our last one. Are you into... Or not into Angelina Jolie sending her daughter Zahara to Spelman for undergrad 
and at the Spellman congrats party, trying to learn the electric slide in a room full of black people. 100% down. It was fantastic. Same. I like it. Let me tell you something. Like, Angelina Jolie is one of those white women where I'm just like, you're actually always invited to the cookout. I don't know why. I don't know what. It, I don't know what it is. You don't even talk that much, but you seem <laughs> down. Yeah, I love her so much, and I'm pretty sure I speak for everyone when I say we all do. Yeah, I can't great. say a thing bad about her. I at love all. her, and if she doesn't know how to do the electric slide, great. She shouldn't. She's too <laughs> frail. That's a broken leg for her. So there's this video. They're like in the room. All the black folks are like doing electric slide. And several of them are there like wanting to be helpful to Miss Jolie. Being like, we can teach you. She does half a twirl. And then is like, now we good. And you know what? Thank you, Angelina. That was the right move. She could always feel when a camera is on her. She knows. We're in lockstep, Amber Ruffin, so let's say you won the game, I won the game. You know, the real winner of the game is Angelina Jolie. (laughs) Amber Ruffin, thank you so much for being our first celebrity guest. When you come back on the show, we will do uh, an episode looking back on the lifetimes and career of Angelina. Oh, yes, please. Yes, I'm ready. Girl interrupted. Hold up. (laughs) (laughs) Salt. Thanks again to Amber Ruffin. She's a writer on Late Night with Seth Meyers. And she also hosts her own show on Peacock called The Amber Ruffin Show. Also, by the way, after we taped this, FX announced that American Horror Story season 11 would premiere in the fall. Which means the fans ended their fan strike and it lasted only a day. In a statement to Vulture, they said, quote, We were looking for FX to acknowledge the show, and I'm happy they did. I think it wouldn't have hurt to give us something a little more solid, but what they said today is better than nothing. We will uh, keep following this ever-evolving story and keep you posted. To start, I'm going to read for you 10 movie titles, and then you're going to tell me the first three words that come to your mind once you've heard these 10 movie titles. Here we go. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Hereditary. Lady Bird. Moonlight. Anka Joms. Midsommar. The Witch. Ex Machina. Room. And Spring Breakers. Yeah, that covers a lot of ground, doesn't it? This is Allison Wilmore and Nate Jones, both from Vulture. And they both watch a lot of movies. Freaky counts? I'd say daring. Daring. I mean, like, it's a horrible film critic word, but I'd say, like, a tourist, right? Maybe the, the one thing that really runs through all of them is that yeah. they feel very clearly made by a particular creative voice as opposed to a company. But there is a company behind these 10 movies I just named. And I'm kind of obsessed with that company. That list of films, those are the highest grossing movies from A24, which might be, in my opinion, the coolest movie studio around. This kind of crystallized for me watching everything, everywhere, all at once earlier this year. And then it was confirmed when I saw Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. 
Who wants to play Bodies, Bodies, Bodies? Which is out this weekend. It's a very good movie. Go watch it. Turns out Pete Davidson can act. Anyway, when I think of movie cool, when I think of the movie zeitgeist I most want to be associated with right now, it's hands down A24. This episode, I'm asking why. And I'm posing that question to two of the best in the game, Allison Wilmore and Nate Jones. Allison is a film critic at Vulture and New York Magazine. And Nate Jones is a staff writer at Vulture covering film. Together, we try to uncover A24's special recipe. We also discuss what exactly makes an A24 movie an A24 movie. The way I see it, there's sort of three interconnected strands. The first strand is you have the very sort of hype beast movies, starting with Spring Breakers. Break, break, bitches! (laughs) Which was their first big hit. But then you get Uncut Gems, Everything Everywhere All at Once. These movies that are very... Uncut Gems. Uncut Gems. Uncut Gems. Right. (laughs) These movies that are sort of very connected into youth culture and internet culture and just sort of seem like they're kind of, you know, surfing the leading edge of the zeitgeist. And then probably the second strand is horror. You are Paimon, one of the eight kings of hell. Which, you know, you Mm. mentioned The Witch, Midsommar... These hereditary. Movies, yeah, Hereditary, right? These are movies that generally do pretty well for them in the box office. There's the joke, you know, they're not regular horror movies. They're elevated horror movies or they're A24 horror movies. But those ones are definitely like, like they're weird, right? Like they are a horror movie set in Puritan, Massachusetts. We are your judges and not you ours. I cannot be judged by false Christians. You know, there's not a lot of jump scares. They're just, we'll impress you with our commitment to historical verisimilitude. (laughs) And then the third strand is sort of, you know, this sort of auteurist prestige cinema. My name is Lady Bird. Uh, Well, actually, it's not, and it's ridiculous. Call me Lady Bird like you said you would. You should just go to City College, you know, with your work ethic. That's things like Room, things Mm. like Moonlight, Lady Bird. They're not just viral buzz. They actually, you know, have taste and have a sense of curation to them. They have very good taste in movies, which I, you mm-hmm. know, really, I think should, we should put that out there. They're they're good at picking directors to work with, at kind of buying movies when they buy movies. But they, I would say, more than anything else, are an incredible triumph of branding. Mm-hmm. Branding and marketing. And I want to get more to that in a bit, but I want us to pull back a little and as best we can offer up the A24 creation story. Can we share how it started to the best that we know? Yeah. Three dudes working in film, right? Yeah, working in film with sort of connections to finance and private equity. Basically, their gambit was we can save money on the kind of traditional marketing in terms of, you know, buying a commercial during the Super Bowl and newspaper ads and concentrate mostly on digital efforts. They pick up movies sometimes that they know, oh, this is a moment that we can turn into a gift. I told you, you're wasting your time talking to her. However, you would not be wasting your time if you were dancing with her. You know, I think, especially of Ex Machina, a movie that sort of stops in its tracks so Oscar Isaac can do, you know, a silly dance for two minutes. Go ahead, dance with her. Dance with her. No? And when you're watching, you're like, oh, this is is weird. It's very silly and beautiful. But you sort of, while watching it, you sort of know, oh, this is going to be on YouTube and this is going to be a GIF and a meme. You know, I think also of a movie like Swiss Army Man, you know, a movie that probably 
other studios might have been scared off by because it's a movie about a farting corpse. All right, man, that's enough, okay? That wasn't me. Played by Harry Potter. Yes, played by Harry Potter. And they realized that in the era of the internet, a movie about a farting corpse sells itself. Yeah. When you look back at some of these marketing campaigns, they're truly genius. When they were releasing uh, the film Ex Machina, they made a fake Tinder chatbot <laughs> to help plug the movie. Are you attracted to me? You give me indications that you are. As part of the campaign for The Witch, this horror film, they made Twitter accounts for various characters in that film, including a Twitter account for the satanic goat that would interact with fans who would tweet about the film. What's that like to live deliciously? Mm -hmm. For Hereditary, they sent out creepy dolls to influencers and critics. It's really genius. So that idea of breaking through and like having people even hear about your movie... I think, like, that's a huge challenge. It's even more of a challenge now. You know, there's just so much noise. So one of the things that I think is interesting about the founding of A24 is how much it seems to have been founded Mm. with this idea of, like, how can we, one, pick the kind of movies that will, do like, break through the noise, but also, two, how can we do the kind of marketing that is not necessarily expensive but is going to also, like, penetrate this wall of sound of, like, things that are competing for people's Mm -hmm. attention. At the start, marketing was really the only thing that A24 could rely on because they weren't making their own movies. They were acquiring movies and then helping to distribute them. That changed uh, with Moonlight in 2015. They helped make that movie from the start. But what changes for a company like A24 when they go from being a movie distribution company to also a movie production company? And how hard is it to keep your aesthetic in the midst of that shift? Uh, you know, they have this stable of of guys we call, you know, the A24 boys where it's, you know, it's... boys, yeah. Yeah, you're most, mostly boys. So it's Trey Edward Schultz is one. You have the Safdie brothers are two more. So I think they acquired Good Time and then produced Uncut Gems. For Ari Aster, they produced both Midsommar and his upcoming film, Disappointment Boulevard. And then Robert Eggers, same, they acquired The Witch, produced The Lighthouse, they acquired Swiss Army Man and then also produced Everything Everywhere All at Once, which has, you know, become a massive hit. Mostly boys. Yeah. Mostly boys. But yeah, I think that movie that also, though, does speak to a sense that, like, they are able to change with the time, right? That is a movie that feels very of this moment. You know, it's very much sort of in the kind of meme therapy speak of, you know, the post-pandemic culture. It's a movie about... Asian and Asian American immigrants, this family, you know, kind of split over over two experiences. When you look at a lot of early A24 stuff, it was pretty white. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and I think that that's also how they have changed with the times mm-hmm. is in kind of looking further afield from, you know, just the boys, yeah. <laughs> the A24 yeah. boys in terms of who can make a movie. I do want to talk about how big of a deal we should think that A24 is. You know, so much of the coverage of this studio says they're new, they're different, they're doing things that haven't been done before, they're changing the industry. But I kind of can't help but compare them to some of the big indie studios of the 90s, the old Miramax or Fox Searchlight, these prestige brands, basically, of yesteryear. In what ways, if at all, is A24 significantly different from what they were doing back then? 
I would argue that there's just much more public awareness of A24 than I would say there necessarily is or was at the time of Miramax. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you would see the Miramax card in front of movies and maybe that would be give you a kind of glow of like, oh, this might be something good. But I don't know that the members of the public felt so attached to distributors in the way that they feel about A24. I would also say we are in, for better and worse, I say mostly for worse, we are in a real era of brand loyalty. Like A24 may be this big story, but how else do people pick things to watch? Marvel, Disney, you know, uh, a lot of just massive brands that people just essentially kind of hitch themselves to. Do you like that? I mean, like as someone who writes about film for a living, do you think that trend is good for movie making and movie consumption? Uh, I think there's so much stuff out there to watch that people are really kind of always casting about trying to find a way to help them choose what they might like next. I don't think it's a better way of choosing things than necessarily like following a person, you know, like like it, w- it would make more sense to me to latch yeah. on to a particular writer or director than it would to kind of latch on to a company. But I do think that A24 has managed to leverage its brand in a way that people will give things a chance that they might not have before. How much of that is purely the merch? I don't think I've ever experienced a movie studio in which people in my circles are actually excited about, like, A24 merch. One of my friends yesterday was raving about his A24 fleece. My favorite thing in the A24 store right now is one of the props from Everything Everywhere All at Once. Jamie Lee Curtis's character has an Auditor of the Month trophy in that <laughs> film that looks like a butt plug. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can buy it for yourself for $60, but it's still on pre-order, at least right now. What is that? like? <laughs> That's a very big part of it. No one's walking around in a Focus Features hoodie the way that they are in A24. (laughs) It goes back to the marketing, is they sort of realize that if we can sort of plug into these downtown fashion circles, that that's sort of another way that we can kind of cut through this noise. And so they've been very strategic about, you know, what sort of designers and brands we partner with on the fashion side. And, you know, we do these limited edition drops that creates this sort of sense of exclusivity and in the know that sort of mirrors the way that these films are sort of treated in the cultural conversation. Um, I do want to step back, though, and kind of ask, in the greater scheme of things, how much does A24 actually matter? I'm obsessed with their coolness. But are they just their own little island, or are they actually changing certain parts of the larger film industry? I think you can say they matter in that they have provided a way for the mainstream culture to sort of be invested in independent film. Their success proved a way for these sort of other smaller companies to kind of draft in their wake. You know, their sort of most famous competitor is this company called Neon, which started, I believe, in 2017. Who are they? (laughs) No idea. So, (laughs) you know, Neon started with iTanya and two years after that won Best Picture with Parasite. Oh. They did open up sort of the model of like, okay, if you are not going to be a Marvel or a Star Wars, here is how you can survive in this sort of modern pop culture environment Mm. where there's so many demands on people's attention and there's not a lot of screens for movies that are not franchises. You know, they've sort of pinpointed the way that other studios can kind of adapt and thrive in these circumstances. Yeah. And I think it is worth noting that, you know, compared to their predecessors, you know, they are genuinely independent. Focus Mm. was a division of Universal. Searchlight was a division of Fox. You know, A24 
yeah, they had a you know investment, but they are not owned by a major studio. You know that may change. There were some rumors last year or two years ago, but you know for the moment they are genuinely independent. Mm. I would also say I do think that A24 has been pretty instrumental in tugging smaller films and the idea of smaller films back from not obscurity necessarily, but from stodginess. Yeah. It's cool to know about these movies. And as loaded as that can be <laughs> as, a, as an experience <laughs> and as a brand, I do think that that has proven to have value. Okay. So here's another thing that I keep noticing about just about every A24 film, especially their biggest hits, and part of what I think makes A24 A24, but I want you to check me on this. It seems like most of their movies are new ideas. Almost none of their movies are based on existing IP or existing big brands. I don't know if they do reboots or prequels or sequels. Is part of what I'm drawn to is A24 just constantly playing with new ideas and not recycled ones. I think that's definitely part of it. You know, they do adapt books, Mm -hmm. right? Like Under the Skin was adapted from a book. When they do do adaptations, they seem to be very squarely of not necessarily source material that you're familiar with. You know, it just becomes that's the basis for which this movie comes. It's not IP. It's an adaptation. And I think, you know, one of their biggest failures was when they did an adaptation of a book that is quite famous, Native Son, is, you know, that played at Sundance and it didn't go over that well and they just sold it to HBO. But yeah, mostly it's not something you have a pre-existing knowledge of. How hard is that to do as a film studio right now when there's so much stuff that feels recycled? Like, is making the choice to make things that feel new, is that really difficult right now? I don't know that it's more difficult now than it was before. I do think that Mm. when you're A24, you don't really have an option because you do Mm -hmm. not own any of the IP, you know, uh, that is feeding all of these giant franchises. And I think that's the... That's really kind of defining the moment in terms of film and television that we're at right now is that all of these large companies that own, you know, all of these libraries of IP, even things, you know, like Greta Gerwig of a famous AP24 movie is making a Barbie movie. I know. I already hate it. (laughs) You know, a smaller company is just not going to own the rights to something that is familiar enough, you know, to really justify a movie remake or reboot of. And so they don't really have a choice. Mm. You really have to shop for all of those ideas that are just sound good on their own basis. What a revelation. I think it's fun to look at one adaptation of IP that they did do, which was Zola. You want to hear a story about how me and this bitch fell out? It's kind of long, but it's full of suspense. Which was a film that was an adaptation oh, of a yeah. Twitter thread, Twitter which was, IP. you know, it was IP that people were familiar with in a strange way, but it was IP that, you know, maybe didn't cost as much as optioning a famous book yeah. or an old TV show. I did have a last question. What do you think is the biggest lesson that A24 and its success can offer to the film industry or to the entertainment industry at large? I mean, this is this is not a, a new lesson, but I think certainly there's something there's value in showing that like you can take risks as long as you know how to sell them. And I think you know we we talk so much about the brand and the marketing, and it's easy to be cynical about that. But underlying it, it is right. The reason they are doing all these things is because these are weird, strange movies that are not based on IP. You know, and if selling your soul to the the hype beasts of Canal Street is the way you make your weird indie movie make money at the box office, like, yeah, then that's a deal with the devil that I think people should make. (laughs) 
Okay. Yeah. I would say that the lesson is that, hey, it's still worth investing in people and their ideas, you know, in like scouting for talent, you know, betting on someone, not just for the project at the moment, but like their future work as well. You know, we do feel like we're in this time where these very large companies will kind of suck up a lot of really talented directors to make movies where you can tell that the, the movie's not really their project. And I think that A24 has really shown the value in finding people with great original ideas and vision and saying, hey, you know, we want you to make a new, a new movie. <laughs> you know, what is it? There Tell you us go. your idea. We're on board. And that's the thing. New. We want new. Mm-hmm. Listen yeah. up, everybody. We want new. Thanks again to Vulture film critic Allison Wilmore and Vulture staff writer Nate Jones. Nate has actually seen every A24 movie ever made, and he's currently writing a ranking of all those films. You can read that soon on Vulture. Culturegeist. Culturegeist. You're listening to Culturegeist. Culturegeist. I don't know, y'all. And now for a segment we're calling Culturegeist. About all the things we can't stop thinking about. The culture that's haunting you. Haunting me. Haunting all of us. For better or worse. My name is Roxana Haddadi. I am a TV critic for Vulture. And my current obsession is why the Corinthian in Neil Gaiman's Sandman has teeth for eyes. (laughs) I have no clue why this is. I have not read the Sandman in a long time. Your eyes will tell me everything. Every thought. Every feeling. And in the new Netflix show, this character is played by Boyd Holbrook, who unfortunately I have a very thirsty thing for, especially when he's wearing little eyeglasses. And uh, I I saw that he has teeth for eyes, and I can't quite understand why that is, nor can I understand why I still find him attractive. But for now, that's just my obsession. Why the teeth for eyes, and why am I into it? Let's find out. Hi, my name is Morgan Bela, and I'm the senior news editor of Vulture. And I am completely haunted by Jeremy Allen White saying, yes, chef. I refer to everybody as chef because it's a sign of respect. Possibly the two best words to come out of TV in 2022. I'm going to make three sections, okay? It is a hot yes, chef summer. Um, You could say it. Yes, chef. Um, Kind of curtly. You say it under your breath when you're pissed. Yes, chef. And then you say it kind of like go off. Like, yes, chef. It really is a powerful phrase. Yo, yo, my name's Terhaka Love. I'm a senior newsletter writer here at New York Magazine, where I helm the daily newsletter dinner party. But in between writing that newsletter, I'm booting up Xbox Series X and playing what? 
That's right, Power Wash Simulator. Coming to you live above the streets of Buckingham, where a phreatic eruption from a long-presumed dormant volcano threatens this usually serene neighborhood. I know what you're thinking. It sounds like a very mundane game. It sounds like something that, yo, like, listen, your geriatric-ass uncle would play. But, like, I myself have never wanted so badly to become a 55-year-old empty nester. Because the way this game just understands me, you know, you boot it up, you get your hoses and your nozzles and all your things, your soaps, and you're dropped into a random place in town or a garage or something like that. And you just go in on all the dirt and the grind that you see around. So Power Wash Simulator is very, very my shit. Vibed out. I'm not trying to like, you know, take on challenges and go on quests and shit. I'm just trying to clean my world. Thanks again to Taraka Love, Morgan Bela, and Roxana Haddadi. My culture, guys, the thing that I'm obsessed with this week is Taylor Swift's reps response to allegations that she is the celebrity who uses her private jet the most. Loaned? Rented? Leased? How much are they paying you? Do they have to pay you? Who's paying for the gas? Who's paying for the insurance? Is it just Taylor Swift's friends? Or is it anybody who wants to use Taylor Swift's jet? Also, if I ever get a private jet, I ain't loaning that to nobody. You're not getting my jet. That's my jet. All right, Intuit is hosted by me, Sam Sanders. And this show is produced by Janae West, Jelani Carter, and Zach Mack. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman. Our engineer is Daniel Turek. Our music is composed by the mysterious yet lovable Breakmaster Cylinder. Our podcast operations manager is Gabby Grossman. Our editorial director of audio at New York Magazine is Hannah Rosen. All right, listeners, we are back next Thursday with a new episode. Until then, if you have one... Don't loan your private jet out. Don't loan it out. Don't loan out the jet. Okay, bye.